The Moravians to me are are super interesting. I always like to tell people that the Moravians are like the Kevin Bacon of the 18th century. <laughs> you can connect them to almost everything. You're always five degrees away from them. This is the Drive-By History Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Ken Magos. On today's episode, I'm joined by curator Christopher Malone from the American Swedish Historical Museum in Philadelphia, a location we visited for an upcoming episode of Drive-By History. All right, let's get to it. Hi, Christopher. Welcome. I'm so happy you can talk with us today. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. Well, this is exciting. Now, we met on an episode that we shot recently that'll be coming up in the next season of Drive-By History um, that featured New Sweden. Um, so I'll let the audience wait. They can learn all about New Sweden when we get to that episode. But in the meantime, it gives us a chance to get to know a little bit more about your background. Yeah. Now, I know that you grew up in the Lehigh Valley region of Pennsylvania, which is very historic and kind of equidistant between New York City and Philadelphia. It kind of forms a little triangle. Right. Did that influence your interest in history at all? It's certainly a historic region. Yeah. So, you know, you're, when you drive around the, the area, you're really seeing things like stone architecture all around you. You're seeing hex signs or what they're now called properly barn stars dotting the landscape on bright red barns. Um, for me personally, I yeah. like to see things like unique graveyards and cemeteries because, you know, grave, grave art is something that, you know, is really prevalent around here. Mm -hmm. I would say what my interest really came was learning about my family in general and um, sort of doing my own ancestry and that ancestry's connection to the historical landscape. So uh, as you know, Americans are made up of many cultures and I myself am as well. Yep. I Most of us are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have Pennsylvania German heritage. I have Moravian heritage. I've got Italian American heritage and some Welsh as well. And both of those uh, heritages also worked at the coal regions up in uh, uh, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. So I'm sort of a Pennsylvania mutt, you could say. <laughs> That's amazing. So how far back does your family go in the area? So our Pennsylvania German heritage probably goes back to around 1734. Wow. My ancestor came over um, on the ship Dragon at the Port of Philadelphia and settled in what was around the lower Milford area of um, probably Philadelphia County at the time and then later Lehigh County. That's amazing. So you you can trace your own ancestry to that region. Yeah, yeah. So it's really fun to drive around and, you know, see the, you know, I don't really have any homes that they lived in, but to see some <laughs> homes that like what they lived in, but like, you know, just, just knowing that people that you're related to are walking this area 250 or 300 years ago. Yeah, that's fascinating. I can't say the same for myself, so I'm quite impressed. Yeah. So I'm curious now, you obviously, um, you studied architecture and filmmaking at the yeah. University of Pittsburgh. Now we're going to talk about that connection right there. And then you went on to get your master's in architecture at Syracuse University. Can you talk about, you know, the intersection of those two disciplines, architecture and filmmaking? What what drew you to those? Yeah. So I, I kind of changed my progression path a lot. <laughs> I originally yeah. went to school for history and was kind of like, oh, I don't know what I'm really going to do with this. And I paired it up with filmmaking at first because I thought I was going to be a documentary filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> and... um. 
I shouldn't laugh. I mean, that's what I'm doing. Right, right. So, yeah. And I just, I don't know, architecture seemed to come out of um, people suggesting to me that like what I did on weekends was constantly go to historic sites. Mm. Well, maybe you should look into that. And so <laughs> funny, I, I like went down to the University of Pittsburgh Architectural Studies office and in literally an hour, they signed me up for the major. Wow. So I kept up with film and I really see that there's this like, there's this way that film and architecture have the same movements and same mm. artistic endeavors. Uh, for instance, uh, both of them share uh, the um, German expressionist movement, uh, which is, you know, wild shapes, dark and light contrasts. And you can see that in both, you know, modernist architecture and mo what was considered modern filmmaking in the early 19th century with German expressionism. Mm. And so, you know, I, you can compare the two different um, uh, disciplines with what what was going on at the time you know they really mirror each other mm -hmm. I would um, and both film and architecture to me are spatial uh, meaning they view space especially the one we inhabit in different ways um, I personally did my um, dissertation or thesis at the at Syracuse University on the intersection between film and um, and um, architecture, it, it gets really, it was a real weird dissertation. <laughs> oh, I'm sure it was interesting though. I, now I have a question for you because in doing yeah. my research, I came across a term that I'd never heard before, spatial voyeurism. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> is this something you coined or is this a term that you, uh, you um, I, I don't know, maybe I did, but um, yeah, it was a, it's a complicated thesis to explain, but it was, mm -hmm. was trying to see how people move through space architecturally within an actual physical environment and how that can be seen within a film environment. Mm. And I, so I looked at different types of uh, films. Some of them were um, explicitly about voyeurism and, you know, like uh, Wings of Desire, for instance, uh, and um, other different films that really talk about you know, viewing something and how architecture really creates a view and the film has to sort of respond to the space that it can only be constrained to. And mm -hmm. so I did a lot of like spatial studies and uh, most architectural dissertations <laughs> result in an actual building or an actual space, but mine was more, um, I, I actually filmed a film to see, to show how you can walk through a building and how, you know, film responds to the actual physical environment. Well, that's so. really fascinating though. I know that there are some ideas in filmmaking about how you can create the sense for an audience that they are watching mm -hmm. by creating, uh, you put something in the, in the foreground so that you feel that you, like you're peeking around a corner. I mean, obviously it's not really what's happening. It's all right. pretend. But it right. does give you that voyeuristic sense. Right. And then in film, you really can break the boundary because you mm -hmm. can show somebody, you know, in one place and somebody in another place. And, you know, it acts as if they are juxtaposed and right next to each other. And so it really breaks apart what architecture, at least inadvertently, can't do. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's fascinating. And so I have a friend and a neighbor who is an architect, and she always talks about the fact that it's the interaction with the space when you walk into an a building that's that's well designed. Right. It's not just functional. 
it right. welcomes you in. It shows you where to to process through the building or through the space. Mm-hmm. So it, film kind of does the same thing. It, te- it tells your eye where to look. Yeah. Yeah. Especially. Yeah. And especially with, with the materials being used and you're feeling it in all of your senses, you know, mm-hmm. from brown to what the walls are made out of. Is there glass involved? How the light is affecting the building, you know, and it also changes your own experience and your own mood when you're in that. And I think a lot of filmmakers were able to do things like that. Um, one of them comes to mind is um, Ozu's films where mm-hmm. he really, you know, showcasing how a Japanese house works and and how linear it is and how he makes the film linear. And I think Wes Anderson really plays on that when you see his films today. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a harder thing to accomplish well, too. Right. Yeah. To do it very well. So I'm curious, you know, one of the things on Drive My History is we go to these magnificent locations that are just gorgeous. Some of them use some of them are museums. Some of them are just historic institutions or locations. I'm curious, um, do you think it's important for those locations, for those structures to reflect the ethos of the subject matter? Is that something that, you know, that's an important factor? Yeah. So I really think that museums should reflect the content of their collections or at least their mission statement. So for instance, modern art museums, I think can be statements in and of themselves. Itself is a piece of modern art, especially on the exterior. Whereas their interiors could be blank canvases to showcase the art inside. And one that really comes to mind is the Guggenheim. Um, That's what I was thinking as you were speaking. <laughs> Frank Lloyd Wright's really doing something there where the, the, it, is, it is an object in the landscape of the city of New York itself, like the objects featured in the building. But when you get onto the inside, it does have a spatial flow, but he creates white walls, which I think was hard for him to do, if you know Frank Lloyd Wright's other interiors, to mm-hmm. showcase that modern art from the Guggenheim collection. Um, so, I, yeah, things like that, I do think. Whereas historical museums, I think they work best when they reflect the time period they are interpreting, which is why I personally find historic sites more impactful than traditional mm-hmm. neoclassical museum architecture. So... You know, like I think if you go to the Philadelphia Art Museum, for instance, the building is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And, and some of the um, the ways that modern art has to fit into this neoclassical building, I find sometimes doesn't work. But then when you go into those spaces, like the French monastic space, and they're showcasing things of that time period is when I really find things to work well within that. And which is what I find going to historic sites more impactful to me than, you know, maybe traditional museum architecture. Um, in, in our own landscape here in Pennsylvania, take for instance, uh, Ephrata Cloister, which is out in Lancaster County. Um, it's a very stark late medieval style architecture. It has Germanic interiors that reflect that monastic life that those people lived. They lived and slept on wooden boards. They ate a vegetable. Wow in diet and made religious manuscripts by hand on their printing press. And I think when you go there, you really feel that when you're walking into these, into these structures. And so it, it really depends what, what kind of thing you're showcasing and what you're really trying to interpret. One of the things that always strikes me when I walk into a space also is how sound plays in that. Depending on, you were talking about the materials that are used, whether it's glass, whether it's brick, 
I'm very sound sensitive. My background as a singer. Mm. Um, so I, I, I'm always very aware of how my voice bounces off the walls, but it also creates an atmosphere in these spaces. Right. Right. And um, using Ephrata as a, another example, again, mm -hmm. it, they did, um, they did really odd vocal singing there and um, they wrote a lot of the music themselves there. And, and it's, it's something I, I'm, I have a hard time describing, but there, <laughs> there is a person that actually re-recorded their vocal songs within the space of their chapel there with people that were able to sing in the German language. And knowing that the recording that you're hearing over your you know, headphones or whatever was recorded and likely sounds like what it would have sounded like in 1740s Lancaster County. Mm -hmm. Like super... It, oh, it's just, amazing. I mean, it takes us right back. It does. Right. It creates that sense of like you have stepped back in time. Right. Absolutely. Especially in a space that was from that time period. Absolutely. Yeah. Or meant to look like that. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So I know that um, you've got a connection to the Moravian Historical Society in Bethlehem. Now, I have to be honest, it's a location that we've looked at featuring on Drive-By History in the past, and I'm hoping that we can do one in the future. Can you talk a little bit about the Moravian culture and yeah. how it's contributed, how it influenced our own culture today? Yeah, that, that's sort of, I started working there when I was really looking into museum work. I did a pivot from architecture. I graduated yeah. from architecture school and got into the field. And it's very different than actually being in school. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think I w w always found that the cultural aspects of architecture really pushed me. And so um, I became a docent there and then eventually was the operations manager. And the Moravians to me are, are super interesting. I always like to tell people that the Moravians are like the Kevin Bacon of the 18th century. <laughs> you can connect them to almost everything. You're always five degrees away from them. Um, that's they hilarious. Founded, <laughs> I've yeah. never heard that before. I like that. <laughs> they founded so they founded a communal town in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and what would they also call the Upper Places, which includes Nazareth, Pennsylvania. So it's about nineteen, maybe eighteen miles from from Bethlehem. Um, they're a great example of a Pietist sect that could flourish in William Penn's Holy Experiment. So that was sort of him coming over here and making Pennsylvania a place where different religions and different thoughts could flourish. And if the Moravians settled elsewhere, they probably would have had a much harder problem. And they even had problems themselves where they were. Um, a lot of their neighbors didn't really like them because they were doing different things than, say, the German Reformed Church or the Lutherans or, you know, other people like that. Um, they're important, though, to me um, because of the material culture they left behind. Um, they're Can you really, talk about that a little bit? I'm curious, what uh, what did yeah. they leave behind? Yeah. So they're really important in music, for instance. Um, one of the uh, members of the congregation was named David Tannenberg, and he was one of the most important organ builders in America. He's probably one of the best, if not the best, colonial organ builder um, of the 18th century. There's probably only nine of his organs left. The Moravian wow. Historical Society has one that used to be in the single brother's house um, in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, but was moved up there at some point. Um, there's one in York, Pennsylvania. There's one, oh, there's a couple more out there. But, you know, he, he, he built these organs and he learned through different people and traditions in Europe and brought that to America. Another person, John Antis, 
was an instrument maker. He made various uh, um, stringed instruments. One of them was the likely the first violin made in North America. Wow. Uh, which is also on display at the Moravian Historical Society. And um, they also contributed greatly to music. They were one of the first groups to bring Bach to America. And um, they also had one of the oldest chamber choirs in America that can actually still be heard today. It's called the Lidditz Musicum Collegium. Hmm. And Lidditz, which is out in Lancaster County, which was a Moravian town, um, has this sort of chamber choir that they still have and they play instruments and um, they travel around and do shows. But it's something that visitors and the Moravians alike would have listened to in the 18th century that you can still hear today. And they also play one of David Tannenberg's organs there along with this. So it's really a, an uh, amazing thing to be able <laughs> to hear something, to see something from that time period. They're also really known for their architecture. Mm -hmm. um, like Ephrata, they had sort of late medieval style Germanic architecture, but unlike other places that used that, they were housing hundreds of people at once in these huge structures, which, you know, to building that type of structure that big, like, for instance, the Single Brothers House in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, it, it's, ma it's massive for that time period. And they really transitioned from doing that to, you know, building things like uh, federal style architecture, like their Central Moravian Church there. And in that same vein, they had people that were helping them out with that type of architecture. One of them is Henry Antis, who um, was the father of the violin maker that I mentioned before. Mm. He's a master builder. And interestingly enough, and there's more, more study that needs to sort of go on about this, but he is the grandfather of what we call America's first architect, Benjamin Henry Latrobe, who was the second architect of the US Capitol. And, and the fact that Henry Antis was a a master builder for Bethlehem. And then his grandson becomes this architect. There's like this architectural like dynasty there that, well, yeah. you know, people, people study both characters, but really never the family in general. And I think a lot of it has to do with their Moravian background because the Moravians were really well-versed in having schools for children of both sexes. And mm. Trobe goes to one of these Moravian schools where he's learning drawing and arts and learning a lot of things that other kids were not learning in schools like that. Um, and finally, they're really also well known for their women's history. Um, Anna Nitschmann Zinzendorf was one of the early leaders of the church. Um, she was married to the leader, uh, Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf, and she really led the women of the church. They were also able to do uh, missions and lead worship, unlike other uh, denominations in uh, Pennsylvania and the surrounding states. Um, and that is their early history. Later, they became sort of mainstream Protestantism, like a lot of other sects and women, their women's history was sort of faded out. But I think their early versions are something that you really can study and what they're best known for. Wow. So like I said, you can connect them. to. <laughs> to That's really fascinating, though. Yeah. And, and very forward thinking. I know there was also a connection to a Christmas tree. Yeah. <laughs> and the Moravian star. Yep. Yep. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about that? So um, 
The Christmas, the Christmas celebration is really a big thing for Moravians because in 1742, Bethlehem was founded and it was founded during the Christmas Eve. And so their Christmas services became such a sort of big thing. And it, the town of Bethlehem is now known as the Christmas City. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll go there and, you know, they have little huts all over the place celebrating Christmas. Um, and one of the things you'll see hanging on the trees and hanging almost everywhere is the Moravian Star. And um, interestingly, it's it's it dates back to one of the uh, schools, I think, in Germany um, that the Moravians had in the 18th century. And it was actually a mathematical lesson um, to the kids. So they had used strips of paper to create these stars and they were really calculating how many different points they could get on it. And I think I think some of the stars got up to like 150 points or something. Most of them wow. now are like 50 points or thing. Yeah, but they were able to get ones that were that big. And you'll find those everywhere. And it's it's almost the sort of icon of the religion itself. That's amazing. I know when we visited, we were scouting the location. We happened to uh, be there around the holiday season for obvious reasons. We were you know curious about what was going on there. They had a live advent calendar. Oh, neat. Yeah. The performance that was going on. And each, uh, I guess, each day of the calendar, somebody holds a live performance in front of their house. And so we're waiting in front of this house with this huge group of people. And the door opens and this man steps out there and he plays the violin. He's phenomenal. Absolutely right. phenomenal. So we get a little performance and they did this day after day, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So- but yeah. It's 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 quite an amazing little town to go to during that season. Well, you made me think oh, of it because right. you were talking about the violin and it's like he right. was playing the violin. I wonder if there was a connection. Right. I didn't know that at the time, but you're kind of enlightening me. I mean, today they even have the Bach choir there where I think almost every every other Tuesday or maybe once a month on Tuesdays, they have a huge ensemble that gets together at Central Moravian and plays Bach. And people wow. see, people play instruments, and it's 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 a it's an amazing experience to be able to see it within a sort of early nineteenth century church like that. Wow, what a fascinating place! I I, I hope that we'll be able to showcase it in the future. Absolutely. I really do. And I'm always sort of yeah, <laughs> Bethlehem gets a big rap, and a, as they should, because they were the center of Moravian life at the time. But all of the other towns that exist, so Emmaus, Pennsylvania, Lidditz, Pennsylvania, Nazareth, et cetera, and some towns that were, that no longer exist, were integral to Bethlehem being its own entity. Mm-hmm. They, they, it would not have survived if they were not also per- bringing in um, agriculture, for instance. Nazareth, for instance, was the agricultural center of Moravian life, whereas Bethlehem was the sort of industrial culture, which is why you see the industrial um, quarter down by the Monocacy Creek there. Mm-hmm. But it's, I think it's integral to know all of the towns and how they relate to Bethlehem. So if you do end up going, go to Nazareth as well. <laughs> well, I will be sure to call you before we do. Too. <laughs> so I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about the Daily Antiquarian blog? <laughs> yeah, so uh, it just celebrated its eighth year. Wow. Uh, um, I, when I was going to different sites on the weekends, probably around 2014, 2013, People kept asking me, how do you find out about these sites? Like, I, I don't, I never hear anything about it. Or, you know, maybe these historical societies are so small that they don't have a marketing department and they're not showcasing 
you know, what they're what what kind of events they're having. And so I decided to start a blog where when I would go to historic sites, I would take photography of the uh, of the sites in if definitely about the exterior, but if I could take interior shots. And then I would do a series of posts first on Facebook, and then I made an, my own personal Instagram profile into the Daily Antiquarian that, at that point. And, um, and just, you know, post stories. Um, I was really talking about mostly architecture in the beginning and about the site itself. Um, but then I really became interested in what's called material culture. So that's anything made or used during the time period of whatever site you're at. And so I also started highlighting the things that were in the, the site itself. And it really resonates with people, I think, especially if you aren't able to go to those specific sites or you don't know something exists. I mean, we... I'm talking about Bethlehem and Ephrata and what, but th and those are well-established sites that people go to, but there are hundreds all around Pennsylvania and New Jersey and, you know, practically anywhere around the United States. I've sort of made the daily antiquarian go global. <laughs> I've posted about my trip to England and, and Germany and things like that, but the things that, you know, I think that need to be in front of people's eyes, especially if they're looking to, you know, get more visitors, help preserve the buildings, et cetera. Um, and and it's, it's grown pretty nicely over the past eight years. And, and it's also helped me get to where I am, I would say, today. Yeah. Been able to really link up with museum professionals and curators before I myself was one. And um, it's helped me find people, get tours of things that, you know, you wouldn't normally. And People really reach out, especially on my Instagram to, you know, feature places and things like that. Kind of like what you're doing. Yeah, it sounds like it. So yeah. I'm curious now, you you mentioned, um, you know, now that you're a curator, how did you end up in this line as a curator coming from architecture, filmmaking, yeah. working um, for the Moravians? I'm curious, how did this all come together for you? Yeah, I had, so I had been visiting sites probably around... 2018 and um it never dawned on me when i was looking at architecture or film to work in a museum mm -hmm. uh, i think that's something that our education system doesn't talk about often you know oh, there's museum jobs and there's a lot of different museum jobs it's not mm -hmm. just a curator or you know a director or whatever so for me it never really dawned on me that that could be the synthesis of everything that i've been doing but then I discovered um, a program uh, through the University of Delaware called uh, the Winneter Program in American Material Culture. And um, it's, it's probably one of the preeminent and only probably one out of three uh, mu uh, museum, you can call it sort of museum studies programs in the country that focuses primarily on what's called material culture. And um, it is a program that runs through the Winneter Museum in Delaware which is probably the preeminent uh, decorative arts museum in the country, has 175 rooms filled with thousands and thousands of artifacts from the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Wow. And um, so I had applied and <laughs> didn't get in the first time and uh, applied the second time. It's incredibly hard to get into. I, I will say they only accept eight students a year. And it's a fully funded program. So that's really fun. You know, if you really, you know, don't want to look at getting into student loan debt, it's mm -hmm. something to. And um, 
So, but it is, like I said, hard to get into. And the second time I applied, I got waitlisted. And I thought to myself, oh, I'm never going to get into this program. Like, who's going who's gonna to give up a space? But it ended up that somebody took a fellowship for a year and a space opened up and I was able to get in. And so from there, you know, that program is really where people go to school to become registrars, to become curators or collections um, uh, people or archivists, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And and you learn with some of the best material culture out there and take amazing trips and things like that. And um, that's really how I got into the museum world. Wow. Um, Yeah, it's, it's super great. And you're working at one of the most beautiful museums that we've been to. I'm curious about that building. Yeah. When we first came to scout the location, which was a couple of weeks before we shot there, mm-hmm. um, I-, I thought we were pulling up to somebody's mansion that had been converted. Yeah, we get that a lot. Every yeah. time somebody comes in, they're like, who lived here? And we're like, nah, nobody did. It's mm-hmm. always a museum. Um the building itself was began in 1926. Um, it was started by a man named Amandus Johnson, who was a Swedish American. Um, he did his dissertation here in the United States on what's called the New Sweden Colony at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, so uh, I won't go too much into it, but that New Sweden <laughs> Colony was a colony that Sweden started here in the Delaware Valley, and it lasted between 1638 and 1655. What Amandus Johnson wanted to do was showcase the fact that Swedes were in America, even predating William Penn, and, they, and that they contributed to the, um, to the, to the rise of, of America becoming the United States. Right. And just for our audience's sake, that is the crux of our episode that's coming up on New Sweden. We actually delve into this in depth. Right. Uh, the building itself here was designed by an architect, Swedish-American named John Nyden, and it conceptually represents that confluence of American and Swedish architecture coming together, which I think is a lot the, of the reason why people think it's a house, because it's actually based on two different houses. One is mm-hmm. Eriksberg Slot, which means Eriksberg Castle, which is in Sweden. And then when you come here, you'll see we have these arcades on the sides, and those come from George Washington's Mount Vernon. And so what Nyden wanted to do was to create an architecture that represented Swedish and American society. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and then he topped it off with a cupola, which is uh, the cupola of Stockholm City Hall. And so you're, you're really going to see an amazing building here to house the collections that we have. Um, I like to consider the museum uh, is it's a great example of early 20th century museum planning and architecture. Well, it's fascinating. And you walk in and you're greeted by this absolutely gorgeous staircase. Yeah. Beautiful painting on the ceiling. I mean, it's so open and airy. And again, as I mentioned earlier, I'm very sensitive to the sound. And it's just, it's a warm sounding building to me. It's really a wonderful space. Yeah. I think that's really what you'll find when you go to Sweden and see a lot of their buildings there. Yeah. I- Naiden was really familiar with Swedish architecture and and um, what it took to build that kind of architecture. Um, and the rooms here are all designed one by one to be their own miniature museums. So that's something that's really cool about the museum. It's not sort of a museum that's a blank slate where everything is, you know, just put in cases in a room. Um, those rooms were installed like over 
the course of the museum's early years. So in 1926, it started. 1928, the museum opened to the public, but it really didn't have its grand opening until 1938, because in those first 10 years, they started adding some of these rooms that you'll see here. Hmm. Each room had its own museum committee at that point, where those people oversaw the design of that particular room, who it was about, the subject matter, and things like that. And they even had a hand in the collections of that specific room. So when you, you'll, when you come, you'll see a lot of the objects on display in these rooms, but you'll see that there's like cabinets and little shelves. And we use a lot of those for storage here. And that's sort of how the old museum model was, uh, uh, especially in a museum like this. And so we've got galleries dedicated to, uh, you know, well-known figures like Jenny Lind, who was one of the first pop stars, you can say, of the 19th century. Yep. We've got um, a, a, a whole room dedicated in the Art Deco style to John um, Erickson, who was the uh, engineer behind the uh, monitor during the Civil War, which was the ironclad ship. Um, and then we've got other rooms like a Stuga room, which is sort of an interior of a 19th century log cabin. Mm -hmm. And then we have an amazing room, which I think most people find is their favorite called the Golden Map Room, which is a whole room where Sweden, Finland, Latvia, and Estonia are represented, which is painted on bronze uh, sheets that was painted in Sweden and installed here in America. And we've got other rooms that were actually made in Sweden too that were installed here. So it's quite a, quite a, quite a museum, quite a history of, uh, of um, early American uh, museum right. architecture or you know, design. Yeah, and our audience is fortunate enough they're going to get to see several of the rooms you just listed awesome. on the episode that's coming up. Yeah, just absolutely stunning. I have to tell you, the hardest part was trying to figure out how to light the rooms, not because you had lighting requirements for us, but to make sure that the audience could see its brilliance the way that yeah. we were seeing it live. Yeah. It's just stunning. Just yeah, stunning. And the museum itself was sort of put here specifically in this area, you're going to find it's all the way down in South Philly in um, what's called FDR Park. Uh, the museum was built on um, obviously Lenape land at the time period. And the land was also deeded to a Swedish colonist named Sven Skud, who um, was deeded the land by Queen Christina, who was the, what would you consider child queen at the time? She was in her teens. Um, he didn't really live on the land, but that's really why they picked this, because it was one of the epicenters of, of the new Sweden colony between Wilmington, Delaware, here in Philadelphia. But it also was put here as to build on the momentum of the um, celebration of the semi sesquicentennial of the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, and there's a connection with the Declaration of Independence and a painting that's on one of the walls there. Absolutely. And you'll find that out. You'll find that out in the episode. I know we got to tease something about the episode here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious, um, as the curator, obviously, you want to put your touch on the uh, exhibits that are going on. What's coming up? Yeah. So we'll have our, our um, we have an exhibit right now called Radically Mary Mako, and that'll be um, up open until September 24th. Um, it's been one of our most visited exhibitions um, for decades. Yeah. Features Mary Mecco Fashion, which is a textile uh, brand from Finland. Um, this exhibition sort of allowed us to 
increase our mission from just talking about Sweden to talking about all the Scandinavian countries. And so um, other upcoming exhibitions will hopefully um, include places, you know, things from Denmark and Iceland and, you know, other, other uh, uh, countries as well. Um, we'll also be doing one that will open this October um, on Karin Larsson. And she's the wife of the renowned Swedish arts and crafts movement painter, Carl Larsson. Um, in one of our rooms, we have a massive Carl Larsson painting, which you'll see um, it, when you come here. And um, it's gonna feature textiles made by her. Um, I kind of like to compare Karin and Carl Larsson to uh, William Morris and his wife, and then his daughter, Mae Morris. They were really making their house sort of what they call a Gesamtkunstwerk, which is a total work of art. Mm -hmm. So the whole building, the outside and the exterior were all sort of in, in um, they were put together so that everything matched in a, in a sort of way. And so she was doing that for their house in Sweden, which was this sort of older 19th century house that they inherited. Um, and, but they were adding, um, pieces that Karin made. So things like textiles, and she was also making furniture for them. And what you're going to see is you're going to see these textiles and furniture and some of the other objects related to the family, some of the dresses that she wore. And she also made a lot of the dresses and clothing for the family. You're going to see those against a backdrop of family photos and mm -hmm. also um, large scale um, prints on textile of Carl's vivid paintings which feature many of the pieces that you're going to see in the exhibition. So he painted a lot of her own textiles within the paintings themselves. Um, we're really excited because it's going to, um, it's an exhibition that's actually coming from Sweden. Um, from I was going to ask you if it was on loan from another museum. It must yeah. be. Yeah. So they, they had this um, exhibition at the Carl Larsson and Karin Larsson house in Sweden. And um, last summer, our director and assistant director visited the museum and asked if we could bring it over here to the United States. And so it'll come here first. And then it's going to go to the American Swedish Institute in Minneapolis. And then it'll go to the Sh you know, Swedish American Museum in Chicago before returning to Sweden. Wow. Yeah. And then finally, we're going to be opening one in March of 2024. And we're going to exhibit a private collection of Swedish cushion covers. And when I <laughs> that, not what I expected. <laughs> it, it's 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 much more interesting than what it sounds. Um, these cushion covers will date to the mid 18th century through the okay. 19th century. Um, they kind of resemble ornate carpets coming out of places like Turkey and the Middle East. Uh, the covers were woven and embroidered in Sweden for use in the home, on carriages, in sleighs, and to make those experiences more comfortable. So lots of Swedes who were not in the upper classes could not afford to buy carpets from Turkey and from the Middle East. And so what they did was they saw them in the marketplaces and then eventually would be able to sort of make their own versions on their looms in Sweden. And so what you'll see is you'll, they're really resembling a lot of them ornate decorations that you see on, on Turkish carpets, for instance. Wow. Uh, these pieces are really colorful and some of the techniques are really outstanding examples of textiles from Sweden's past. Fascinating. So how can people learn more about the museum and you know, stay up to date about these upcoming exhibits? Yeah, so we have a calendar of events and exhibitions on our website, which is AmericanSwedish.org. 
Uh, we post regularly on our social media channels, um, including Instagram and Facebook. Um, our website also includes information about all the galleries that I was talking about. Um, so you'll get to see some images and sort of a little bit of background information on some of the galleries you'll see when you're here. Uh, we also have information on our website about our, what we call core events that we have throughout the year. So some of the events change and some of the events happen every year. And some of them are our Christmas Lucia presentation, which is a traditional um, Swedish um, uh, Christmas market. And then we have um, members, children dress up as uh, St. Lucia and her attendants, and they do songs and dances and people really love it. It's been going on at the museum probably since the 1930s or earlier. Wow. And um, we also have our summer midfest, summer midsummer festival, which we just had, but we have it every year. And um, it's people get flower crowns, which are super popular. We sell out every year <laughs> and features Swedish food, Swedish dancing around the Maypole. And um, we've been finding that that, that um, event has become really popular, especially among younger audiences. I don't I know if the film Midsummer has anything to do with it, <laughs> but I assure you it's nothing like the film. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good disclaimer. I know you guys also are available for events like weddings. Absolutely. Yeah, we work with um, Jeffrey Miller Catering at the at the museum and we have weddings, which under an, a really nice tent that we have out on our terrace. Uh, people can get married both in the museum and also out on the grass portion of our terrace where we put really nice chairs and things out like that. Um, it's a really beloved place to get married. Um, because of the beauty of the interior of the building, um, the, the nice uh, room that you can use uh, within the tent, but also because we're out, sort of outside the city and we have a lot of parking, which yes. is, uh, for other sites is, is a hard sell, but we really are able to get people here and you know people really love it. Um, we also are open for other events. People have been holding things here that you know don't relate to weddings or the museum itself. And they're, we, we, you know, we open our, our doors and, and tent and lawn for other events that people want to hold here. Well, I hope people continue to support this wonderful institution. It was such a pleasure. Thank you for letting us come in and film there. Sure. It was just stunning. And I'm so excited for our audience to be able to see this episode. Yeah. It should be coming sometime in 2024. I'll keep you posted. Um, and as always, uh, for anybody watching today, if you want to learn more about our show, you can always visit drivebyhistory.org. You can watch past episodes and learn about what's coming up. Christopher, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you again. Yes, it was so amazing and you know, amazing having you here and amazing being able to talk to everybody. Thank you. All right. We'll see you soon.